Did you know that your unused medications could end up in the wrong hands? It's important to keep your medication secure in a locked location, such as a locking box or locking cabinet. When it's time to dispose of them, safety and properly dispose of old, expired, or unused meds by using an at-home disposal product or a medication disposal box in your community. Don't miss out on medication take-back events happening near you. Don't let anyone take what's yours. Lock your meds. Be aware. Don't share. Learn more at lockyourmeds.org nc. Is this where all of the timeouts are? The yes. unused timeouts. All of them are in those boxes. The unused timeouts are in the boxes that have tape on them. So nobody can get in and steal my timeouts. I've got them forever. <laughs> Roy Williams was quick with names and good with a whistle. The story of how he made it to the top with two of the Blue Blood programs in college basketball has been told. But not like this. And not with this type of honesty and insight from that dadgum legend himself. Now, the Roy, that dadgum legend podcast. When Roy Williams retired as North Carolina's basketball coach on April 1st, with the third most wins in NCAA history, three national titles, and nine Final Four trips, he described his career as okay. Whip smart and with an impeccable memory for details, Williams should have used a thesaurus when he retired. He did a little more than okay in his 33 years as a head coach, first at Kansas and then at UNC. Dean Smith built the Carolina program into a national power, starting in the 1960s and through his retirement in 1997. But it was Roy Williams who saved it. Old Roy, from Marion in the mountains of western North Carolina, perpetually undersold his own savvy and leadership genius. He didn't just win by recruiting, as so many of his critics and peers tried to diminish and withhold his bona fides. There aren't many success stories where one legend follows another. Dynasties mostly come and go with their leaders. Achieving the type of consistent excellence that Smith had in four decades wasn't easy. Duplicating it, as history has shown, was nearly impossible. As UNC prepares to move on from another legend to a new coach this season with Hubert Davis, and Duke will do the same next year from Mike Krzyzewski to John Shire. It's worth noting Williams' particular place in history, and not just in college basketball. Recently, Joe Ovius and I had the chance to spend two hours with Williams in his new office at the Smith Center. His went from a little to a lot story has been told, but not like this before. Not with his insight and the historical perspective afforded to him by his retirement. This six-part podcast will cover the details of Williams' career in a way that only he could tell. Williams' story from an intramural official in basketball and horseshoes, yes, horseshoes, to the Naismith Hall of Fame is truly remarkable and, quite frankly, unique. To think of where he came from, cut from the UNC varsity team before his sophomore year, really is too improbable to believe. And like any good college sports success story, It starts with recruiting. But this is not a how they landed a five-star hero or how the coaching staff unearthed the diamond in a rough kind of recruiting story. Rather, it's one that involved Roy Williams, head of intramural officials at UNC, being trusted by Smith and his top assistant, Bill Guthridge, to help a UNC program that had fallen behind NC State in the mid-1970s. Both schools were recruiting Phil Ford, arguably the most important recruit in the history of the Triangle. If the start of this story goes another way, if Ford had followed David Thompson to NC State, who knows where even Smith's career goes? Who knows if we'd ever have heard of Roy Williams? 
health education teacher and basketball coach at Charles D. Owen High School in Black Mountain, North Carolina. There's certainly not going to be 903 wins. The national titles for UNC in 2005, 2009, and 2017, they would all be left to your imagination. But that dadgum legend of Roy, it might never have been, if not for this story and how it all started. What is that story? I'll let Roy Williams tell you how it began. want to go back to the beginning before we get to the end your first year at North Carolina you played freshman basketball your second year you end up you don't make the team so just take me through how you ended up being the stat guy because I I want to give you credit for like being the first advanced analytics guy in uh, (laughs) college basketball maybe that was your, your true calling it's even worse than that uh so my freshman year, I was on the freshman team. I loved it. You were a pass-first, all-defense point guard? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd scored so much in high school, but I got here, and all of a sudden I said, geez, that guy's better than me, that guy's better than me, that guy's better than me. I was guarding Steve Previs. He was 6'3". I was 5'9", barely. I did grow an inch and a half in college. I got to 5'10 and a half by the time I finished. But uh, he was 6'3", faster than me, stronger than me quicker than me every could do everything better than me and I had to guard him every day so it did uh, uh, make me realize where I was uh, but that's not the reason I came here I came here because I wanted to be a coach and my high school coach Buddy Baldwin thought I could watch and learn something from Coach Smith so we win the big four freshman tournament I think it's the only time they ever had a big four freshman tournament our freshman oh, team so freshmen weren't eligible no Okay, so yeah. everybody had a freshman team. At this everybody point. had a it's freshman team. It's not like team. now where you no, have a JV team no, no, and no, no one else does. This was no. a this was a thing. We had eighty seven guys try out, and seven of the guys had some form of scholarship. So they were going to keep fifteen. So eighty guys were trying out for those other eight spots, and so I felt good about making the team. Uh, but uh, we played Duke on a Friday night and fill up Carmichael Auditorium, and the varsity played on Saturday. So, I mean, the freshman basketball is a big thing. I still have in my house somewhere a picture from Basketball Times because they voted our freshman team as the number one freshman team in the country. And so it was good competition for me every day. But we win the tournament. I come back, and I'm scared to death because I'm, I'm about to run out of money. And so I passed through Woolen Gym, saw a sign that said umpires needed for intramural softball. And so the meeting was that, that night on Monday night. So I went and basically – the rest of my college life, I worked 20 to 24 hours every week the rest of my college career. I mean, I umpired baseball, refereed basketball, officiated football, did horseshoes, did archery, did wrestling. I mean, everything that you could do. And Horseshoes feels like it might be stealing money a little bit. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but somebody has to take the horseshoes and the sticks out, to, you know, the post, uh, the pike, spike, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, it was, but I did. I worked 20 to 24 hours every week the rest of my college life. And Is that so, why you never abused the officials? Uh, well, it gets even worse. Okay. Uh, my j- senior year, I was the supervisor of officials. So I had 108 guys on my payroll. 
And one of those 108 guys is one of the trustees for the University of North Carolina. He used to work for me. <laughs> but I had to do that. And, and I considered transferring my high school coach, told me that the, he had, the Oral Roberts coach had called. And, and I said, no, I'm staying. I, I thought about it for one-tenth of one second. I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm at the right place. But during that time period, I became known as the best official on campus. And so for basketball, I did the – uh, black student movement against the law school. I did the residence hall finals. I did fraternity finals. I did every one of them. And that was during very turbulent times. One of the toughest games I ever officiated was the law school against the black student movement team. And they were going at it so hard, and it was a great game to officiate. But the people on the sidelines were really getting to be a problem. And I told them, I said, if we don't stop, the, you guys talk to your fans, because if they don't stop, I'm shutting this thing down. And so I became a little bit more uh, lenient towards officials by doing all those things that I got through. But my senior year, I think it was, it could have been my graduate school year, Coach Smith uh, and Coach Guthrie's, because I had been around and they would see me and this kind of thing and knew that I wanted to coach and knew a little bit about my reputation. So I would come and uh, officiate some varsity scrimmages on Saturday morning. And just give them somebody that would just officiate. I didn't say a word except foul on you or something like that. And then when I was in graduate school, I was finishing up in summer school. Two things happened. Coach Smith told Coach Guthridge, Phil Ford, we need to make sure he has a great camp experience. Let's put some good officials in his gym. And Coach Guthridge and I just run into each other. And he said, well, Royce here in summer school. And he can work at night. He can't work during the day. And Coach Smith said, all right, get him. So every time Phil Ford drove, it was a foul on the other guy. And every time he tried to take a charge, it was a charge. And Phil had a great camp experience. And uh, so Coach Smith invited me the next summer to come back uh, to school. And my senior year, I had kept a points per possession chart in uh, Carmichael and at Raleigh and at Duke or any place that I could drive to. And Coach, what I will always have to hand it to Coach. He, I never handed it to a manager. I handed it to Coach. I just walked back at halftime and gave it to him. And uh, he liked that part because I was quick at it and did it the right way, I guess. So then uh, uh, after my first year at Owen High School, he invited me back to work the whole camp, mornings and night, and they made me the head of a gym. And he walked in one day and he says, which one is Joe Giglio? I said, that one right there. And he said, which one is Doug Moe? And I said, that one right there. And he said, which one is? And he said, you know everybody? And I said, yeah, coach. I said, I make a deal with them. I have 72 kids in here. And if I don't know their name by Tuesday morning, I'll buy them an ice cream cone. And I, I said, they're never going to win an ice cream cone. And I memorized 72 names in the first day. And so Coach thought that was really neat, too. So I took care of Phil Ford, and I remembered all the names, and that's what happened. <laughs> what was your process like? Because you would attend practice, mm -hmm. Coach Smith's practice, mm -hmm. and, and take notes. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Your organization, organizational skills are legendary at this point, but what, were, what was your game plan going into those practices and how you wanted to be organized and what mm -hmm. you – because sometimes you could – take on a task like that and be like this is overwhelming mm -hmm. what am i going to learn i'm going to try to learn everything yeah. at once right so how did you kind of approach you know when i played on to absorb all of that yeah when i played on the freshman team i was mad at myself for not taking notes after practice because i knew i wanted to coach you know i, I wanted to be as i said wanted to be buddy ball and, 
And so I'm going to go out on the intramural football field. I've got a four o'clock game. Well, basketball practice started at 2.30 or something. So I would go sit up in the stands in Carmichael above the concourse level. And very first time or something like uh, probably my junior year. I don't think I did it my sophomore year. Uh, but one of the managers was Greg Miles. And uh, I saw Greg because they had a security guard. It would go around and run everybody out. And so I saw Greg as I'm coming in. I said, Greg, do you think Coach would mind if I sit up here and watch practice? And he said, I'll say something. And so I'm sitting up there, and Coach Smith looked out and looked up there, and Greg went over, and Coach Smith nodded. And Greg came over, and then the security person, Mr. Council, came around. Greg told him, so for the rest of my time, I I may only stay there 15 minutes, or I may stay there 30 minutes. But it was predicated on when I had to be on the field to start working. And so I started taking notes to make sure that what I remembered was right. Kirsch asked me the other day if I think I still have those notes. I think I do. I haven't taken the time yet to Were find Were you a note card guy? Did you have a bigger note pad? A legal pad. Legal pad. Yeah, just plain old ordinary legal pad. A pencil or pen guy? Or uh, pencil. Was it? Were you writing down drills? Were you writing down what? coach was saying or, or the format what were some of the things that kind of everything. everything you know i'd say okay it's 215 and they're doing three line break and coach said stay wide and plant your outside foot at the foul line extend and make a 45 degree and i'll cut to the basket 231 they're doing four on four shell and they're working on support and i draw do the exodus and draw the keyhole and that kind of thing so you're at owen you're working the summer camps and then it's 78 I believe when coach Smith offers you the, the part-time assistant mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. and even Wanda's giving you the, you sure yeah. about this? Yeah. It's a little stronger than that. <laughs> so how did that kind of come about and what, what was your role on, on those first teams? You know, it was strange because uh, we're working camp and coach Guthridge said, how are you doing? This is at lunch and we're meeting to get all the campers. We're moving, you know, the better players up and knowing we're getting some other guys coming up to play up themselves. And he said, how's it going? I said, coach, it's going great. I said, I love the kids, love what I'm doing. I said, but I feel like I'm cheating the high school because I'm teaching five classes of health and physical education. And the only thing I really have a tremendous desire about is my basketball team. And I said, I'm wondering if I need to start thinking about trying to see if I can get into college coaching where all my time is spent on coach. He said, well, I think that'd be something for you to consider. And so that was it. And the next day he said, are you serious about thinking about something? I said, yeah, coach, because I said, I mean, I don't really care about health, teaching what that book says. I I mean, I'm supposed to be doing my pra- teaching plans, and I'm sitting there doing basketball practice plans. And so then uh, on uh, – Thursday night staff party. Uh, they bring all the – and we used to go down what used to be slugs at the Pines, and then it was something that's where the imaging center is now to cross where you're turning to go to Finley Golf Course. And Coach Smith said, you got a second? <laughs> oh, no, Coach, I'm too busy to talk to you. And he said, come here, man. And we went and sat down at a booth, and he said, the NCAA a few years ago allowed you to have a third assistant that was called the part-time assistant that was really – full-time job, part-time pay. And I never forgot that statement. That was one of his first. But Eddie needs some help out on the road recruiting, and you're so organized. I think you could do some things, he said. But Roy said, it's not very much pay. 
I don't know if you can make it, uh, but we'll help you try to find some things. But knowing you, you'll probably be able to figure it out. And so I said, Coach, I said, uh, I have no idea. I'm surprised by this. But if I had a chance to be a college coach where all my time is devoted towards a basketball program and or feeding my family, that's the situation I would want. And so that was it. And so I did go home and tell Wanda, and she said, let me get this straight. <laughs> so if we stay here this year, we're going to make $30,000. I was going to make sixteen. She was going to make fourteen. We she just, was teaching English. She was teaching yeah. English. She was going to teach at Tuscola. She had taken a year off because our son was born, and Scotty was one. So she said, I'm going to be at Tuscola for 14. You're going to get 16 from Owen. We have a one-year-old little boy, and we've been in this house that we built for one year. And you want to go to North Carolina for $2,700 dollars for the whole year i said uh that's about it i said but i'll find a way i'll do some things i'll get some other jobs i'll find a way and she said okay when do we leave but i mean it was are you telling me you want to do this kind of thing and we even inquired about delivering newspapers for the raleigh news observer and the durham morning herald and but when i got down here coach smith and coach guthridge both said we will find some things for you, some part-time jobs. But the day we pulled in, Glenn Lennox, I'm driving a U-Haul it. And uh, Coach Guthrie's over there said, Wanda, this morning they had somebody retire at Chapel Hill High School, an English teacher. And if you can get over to the personnel office by 4 o'clock, they would like to interview you. And so I climb over crap and get to her clothes, get her a dress. She goes to Chapel Hill High School, and they hire her that day. And she starts the next day. And so that first year she taught at Chapel Hill High School, and then the second year started there too. But we made the decision to continue trying to have family instead of waiting until we could afford it because we may never afford it. And so the second year she only taught uh, August, September, and October. Uh, I said, I'd like for you to raise our children instead of somebody else. So she's never had a job since. So that's where the driving, I made $113 every Sunday for driving 504 miles. And that was pretty daggum good. I mean, of twenty seven hundred a year, I wasn't even making a hundred dollars a week, and so I did that. And in the second year, I really got the calendars straightened out. And that was the hardest job because the first time I did it, just cold calls. I remember talking to one You're guy selling like a North Carolina Dean Smith North Carolina basketball calendar. calendar. Okay. 18 by 35, I think, and we'd put Joe Gillio real estate on the bottom. And but did you I, sell the ads. Yeah, I went. I did everything. And uh, the funny thing, my first year, I'm giving you too much information, but it's silly. First year, I drove uh, 9,000 miles in the summer, sold 10,500 calendars in nine weeks, and made $2,400 is all I made. Rick Roby got the same amount as I did, the former player at Kentucky. He had some printer in Richmond had started a deal at Kentucky, and so Rick wanted to help, so he's the one that contacted Coach Guthrie's, do you have anybody on your staff that needs to have any money? And so the second year, I got a lot smarter. I cut out Rick Roby. <laughs> I went straight with the printer. So even if I had just sold the same thing, I would have made twice as much money because he got the same thing I did. Well, eight years later, instead of nine weeks, I did it in five weeks. Instead of driving 9,000 miles, I drove 5,000. Instead of selling 10,400 cal- calendars, I sold 53,000. And instead of making twenty four hundred dollars, I made thirty thousand. How in the world did you sell fifty three thousand? I worked my butt off at it, and I stopped going to see Joe Gillio Real Estate, 
who did an ad in the in the program because you also did an ad in the Duke program, the state program, the Wake program. I went just to the North Carolina people. They knew what I was trying to do, and they had heard the story, and so they were very, very helpful. And then they became very popular. Uh, the Harry Bryant, Big Harry, and then Harry Jr., Bryant Electrical Supply and Gastonia, they were my best customer. And uh, so it's when, um, not the walkie-talkies, when people in the, on the CBs, CB yeah. uh, citizen band. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think. Of. So the one of the presidents of Brian Electrical Supply passed one uh, freight you know, tractor trader guy, and he had one of the calendars in the in the back window. It was just laying back there, and the trucker said, "Hey, he said, I see one of those calendars," and he said, "Yeah, he said I love North Carolina basketball." And so the trucker said, "Do you have any of those more with you other than that one?" He said, "Well, I'll pull off at the rest area up here." So the president or vice president of Bryan Electrical Supply pulled over. The trucker pulled over. Three more cars pulled over to the rest area, and he started giving those calendars out. So they were really popular. And uh, but I still think I know every calendar customer that I ever had. But uh, so that was eight years later. I got it to that point, but uh, it, I got a lot better at doing it. Twenty seven hundred dollars, and Wanda says, "All right, let's go." Yep, that's love. Yeah. It's stupidity too <laughs> on my part, but uh, no, I, same thing as coaching basketball. Uh, I was always comfortable, confident. I, I knew that some way, somehow I'd get enough money without robbing a bank or anything that uh, I could support my family. And after my first year, uh, Dave Odom took over the East Carolina job and offered me a full-time assistance job. I felt like it was going to be in my best interest to stay in North Carolina, just like turning down those other later head coaching jobs. If it didn't fit exactly what I wanted, I thought I'd, I thought I'd be all right. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's one thing to idolize Dean Smith, which Roy Williams did. It's another to get a break from Dean Smith, which Roy Williams did. But there's also the learning from Dean Smith and... How to Learn to Be Your Own Coach. So much of what Williams did at Kansas and Carolina was patterned after what Smith did. And let's remember here, Smith learned the game at Kansas under his college coach, Fog Allen. Allen, whose name just so happens to be on the arena at Kansas, learned from his college coach at Kansas, who was James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. That's an amazing lineage. But it's one that Williams found a way to both emulate and develop his own style. Mentioned being stubborn. I think part of that has obviously served you well. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think so. But it's also, if you actually cared about such things, and I think probably at some point in your life you probably did, mm -hmm. it also is to the detriment of what people think about you. Because you were never performative as a coach. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You weren't holding up play one, play two. Uh, you weren't calling the timeouts, which is what 
we're trained to think of as fans and media. Oh, that's the mark of a good coach Mm -hmm. is the guy who puts on the show during the game. Right. So I think that inadvertently contributed to how people interpreted your own coaching skill. Mm -hmm. And I wonder at what point did you learn to say, you know what? I'm, I got to do it my way. I, I can't, try to be Coach Smith. I can't try to be Jim Valvano, who would have been demonstrative, or, yeah. or Mike Krzyzewski. Mm-hmm. At what point did you figure out, you know what, at, the only way this is going to work is if I figure out how to do it my way. No, I agree. I'll, I'll give the two answers. One, I'm coaching the JV team in North Carolina. And, you know, you'll hear these people say, oh, God, he's only coached at Kansas or in North Carolina crap. I coached a JV team here for eight years. I had two practices every day for eight years. And so calendar. So I don't, you know, things like that. So I feel like I paid my price. But coaching the JV team, we were always playing teams that were more gifted. And I'll never forget, we played four CUNY Military Academy with Melvin Turpin, David Wade. Uh, you know, I mean, we played uh, Chowan with uh, Nate McMillan. Well, we're playing a game one time and uh, we set it up. They're shooting a free throw. And I just tell one guard, I said, run this. And so they make the free throw to go up one. And same scenario as uh, uh, Theo and uh, Luke. We take the ball out of bounds and go down, and we get a wide-open shot and make it. And the referee said it wasn't any good. And Coach Smith was standing at the end of the court in Greensboro Coliseum right in front of the locker room and walked out on the court to question the uh, uh, timekeeper because he said, are you sure that was not any good? But what that showed me, too, is regardless of what game it was, there were 17 people in the crowd watching that game <laughs> and Coach Smith standing in the, outside the locker room. But I did it my way, and it, it worked. Referee just didn't make the right call. This is the way I looked at it. So that was the formative part. And in my first year at Kansas, we're playing Kansas State, and we're up three, and we don't foul, and they make a 40-footer tight. And then we beat them in overtime. But I was so mad at myself. And I told our staff, I said, they should fire all of us. This is my first year. And, in fact, I didn't even have a contract because I didn't sign it until after the season was over with. Uh, but uh, so I called Coach Smith that night, and I said, Coach, that was so silly. I mean, he said, well, you know, it doesn't always work, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so seven days later, they play at Georgia Tech. Carolina's got a three-point lead, and they foul. They make the first uh, try to make, uh, miss the second one, bank it in. And then so they take it out of bounds and turn it over on inbounds, and Dennis Scott makes the basket to beat them. And I was scared to death coach was going to call me that night. <laughs> and that itself also said, well, you got to do what you feel, regardless of what Coach Smith or somebody else. I was always confident. I don't think I was always cocky, but I was always confident. But after that, I said, hey, you just got to do your thing. If Coach Smith doesn't believe in it, that's okay. If you believe in it, and if, and he was my high source, you know, there was nobody any higher than he was. So if it, if he didn't necessarily think it was always right, that was his prerogative. He had that right. Well, I had the right to believe it my way. And it wasn't any defiant thing. It's just, I said, Hey, you got to coach the way you want to coach. And uh, I never varied away from that. I never cared what people thought about how I looked or calling timeouts or getting your coaches together out and having all these discussions and then going in and talking to your team. Every Joe, every timeout I ever had, my assistants got to talking every timeout. And the way I did it with them, I said, I'll, I'll start it, and then I'll point at you or tap you on the knee or something. If you got something to say, say it. Say it quickly and then move on, and then I'll say the last thing. 
And everybody says, oh, gosh, that's really having confidence in your assistance. And it was. But it's also, I wanted to hear what they say. It would drive me crazy if players are leaving a timeout and one assistant coach grabs a point guard, another one grabs a big guy, and they're talking to them individually as they're going out. I mean, I didn't care what they said, but I just wanted to know what it was. And so that was it, too, is that I felt like I had control, but I didn't have to hold my thumb down on everybody. And uh, so I really did. I did it the way I wanted to do it. You mentioned the other main criticism there that you worked at North Carolina. You had your two head coaching jobs. Yeah. Kansas, North Carolina, the two of the Blue Bloods. Mm-hmm. I'd argue, not not because we're sitting here, but I'd argue North Carolina is the best job mm-hmm. in all of college basketball because more than one coach has done it here. Mm-hmm. That's one of the other main criticisms of you, but you mentioned the calendars. We're a long way from you selling those calendars yeah. and <laughs> schlepping across yeah. North Carolina. You obviously had a, a faith in yourself. And, and if you had stayed at Owen High School, I'm guessing... And we're talking about 20 state championships yeah. instead of <laughs> nine Final Fours and three national titles. You would have been equally satisfied. But I wonder when you were selling those calendars, did did you ever think it would it would go this way? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, when people say those things, it, it doesn't bother me. I just sort of giggle because I know how hard it worked, and I also know that I was selling calendars. I was driving copies of Coach Crumb's football show and Coach Smith's basketball show, and that was 504 miles every Sunday. I'd get up at 5 o'clock and go to Durham, pick up the copies, and then take off to Greensboro and Asheville, turn around and come back, and always have JV practice on Sunday night. So I knew how hard it worked, and I knew it wasn't a silver spoon in my mouth kind of thing, so that never really bothered me. I just giggled about it. But no, for me... If I'd stayed coaching at Owen High School, and I was there five years, and uh, you know one of my former players, Porky Spencer, comes to almost every game. I mean, he's 65 years old, and I'm thinking, God Almighty, I coached a guy who's 65, be 66 pretty soon. But I would have been comfortable as long as we were being successful. It didn't have to be at North Carolina. It didn't have to be at Kansas. Nobody in this state, well, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people in this state even know where Owen High School is. Yeah, to me – my own satisfaction was the most important thing. So that's the part of it. And then the second part, I would have been very happy to have been here another 30 years as Coach Smith's assistant. And I was very satisfied. But it just sort of, you know, I, Coach Smith said, I think you got a chance to be the new coach at Kansas. I'd turned down Mississippi State. I'd turned down Chattanooga. I'd turned down George Mason. And all three of those were straightforward. The job is yours if you want it. I think I could have had the Furman job, but I wouldn't give them an answer would I take it or not because this is silly. The president was a great guy. Dick Sheridan was the AD, and I loved him, and he was so good to me. But the president said, if we offer you the job, will you take the job? And I said, right now I'm more worried about us beating Auburn tonight in the NCAA tournament. And if I take this job, I won't be looking at another job. I'll be most interested in how we do. But right now I've got to get back down to Birmingham and be able to help coach this game tonight. And so to me, it was always going to be where I was standing was where it was greener. You know, I've always thought that it's uh, where I'm standing is the greenest place. And But you have to make it that way. But I was, I would have been comfortable. I, would have, I wanted to be like Buddy Baldwin. I didn't want to be like Dean Smith. That was never a dream of mine. I just wanted to be like my high school coach.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. As Roy Williams put it, Dean Smith was the high source in his life. But there's no question who his role model was or from whom he got his work ethic. Lalage Williams, or as everyone called her Mimi, was Roy's mom. He once told the great writer William Knack she was an angel. There's a famous story about Mimi that everyone knows and how she left a dime for Roy to buy a Coca-Cola with his friends at the corner store. There's another one about her death and the gift from her that he still has that hasn't been told. We have a Coke machine here in your office, and I think everyone knows the story about your mom leaving the dime for you and, mm-hmm. and having to do all the work that she had to do in order to provide that for you. Mimi. Yep. Mimi. I'm trying to keep it together myself here. Coach. Yep. So this is a great quote. If there ever was an angel, it was my mom. She was the angel of the world. Every day from morning until night, her only thought was how to take care of us. And my sister... She was a senior when I was an eighth grader, and so the next year she got married. And so for the next four years, it was just me and my mom. And then my sister had tried to have some jobs a little bit while she was in high school, but, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, much. But my mom only cared about us. She retired at 65 because she wanted to see the grandchildren. And seven months later, she got cancer. Nine months later, she was dead. But... The last week she worked, she worked 48 hours. And that's about what she did all the time because she would work every Saturday too. So it was a kind of thing that I knew, uh, you know, the old story about me, I hate to put it this way, breaking into Biltmore's gym. I didn't ever break anything. (laughs) I climbed up the outside wall and and let myself down and uh, that kind of thing. But she would take in other people's uh, clothes to iron on Sunday nights. So she would work. Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday nights, she would do ironing. And uh, so I knew how tough it was. And so it was a pretty easy deal. I lived close to Biltmore Elementary School. And while the, uh, when school was out at 3 o'clock, the buses would then come from Robertson and let off the people in the Biltmore District out Biltmore Elementary School. So we would play on the playground 
asphalt playground until the buses got back. And that's where they parked the buses. So I would stay after school 45 minutes playing on the playground, basketball or chasing people or whatever it was at that time. And uh, so my sister's riding the bus from the high school into Bill Warren and right across from the elementary school was a service station, filling station is what we called them in those times. And my sister saw me and I was sitting on the curb and she came home and mom was uh, before we got to dinner or something, she said, asked me, what are you doing? I said, I was just sitting there. And mom, mom said, what do you mean you were just sitting there? I said, well, we play and then we go to Ed's filling station and uh, everybody gets a Coke and I just sit there and wait and then we walk on home. And it really bothered her. And she said, well, what do you drink? I said, they have a water fountain. And so I said, I get some water. And, uh, Cokes, had, uh, in the old days, if you said Coke, you meant everything. That's just the way you described a soft drink. Uh, they had just gone from five cents to ten cents, not too much longer, too much earlier than that. And so the next morning, my mom would get up and leave and uh, go to work. For five years, we never had a car in my family. After my sister got married, we didn't have a car in my family. My mother rode the bus to work or rode with somebody. I rode the bus everywhere I went or thumbed. And uh, which I did a lot in high school, even three times my freshman year in college, back and forth to Asheville. But the next morning I got up and there was a dime on the kitchen table. So that night I said to mom, I said, you don't have to do that. I said, I'm fine with the water. She says, no, if everybody else is drinking a Coke, you need to be able to drink a Coke too. The good news is, is that it, it was only a little over a year that she did that because then I was one of those kids going to the high school. And so I didn't have that, uh, uh, opportunity, but it always, uh, it was a big moment to me. And it was a moment that, uh, still, you know, I, cause she was, she was the angel of the world and to do those kind of things that were very simple, but were, they were very big to me. And so when I become the coach at Kansas, uh, buddy Baldwin, my high school coach comes out to see a game and I take him out in the garage and we had a freezer that was a uh, open top, but we also had a stand up extra refrigerator out there. And I said, look here and I opened the refrigerator and it was full of Coca-Cola. So I said, I told you one time, one of these days I was going to be able to afford all the Cokes I wanted. She's the reason you have such a passion for raising money for cancer yeah. research. And very much so. Um, it's been, it's millions of dollars mm -hmm. now. I, mm -hmm. I don't know um, how to thank you enough for your involvement in that because it truly is a, a yeah. passion project for you. And uh, it's just amazing to see the, just like your mom, mm -hmm. it's, maybe it seems like a simple thing to you that you're trying to help people. Mm -hmm. But uh, on behalf of some of those people, I say thank you to you. You know, you think about it, it touches everybody and it's going to touch people even more. I lost my mother, my father, uh, my best friend here in Chapel Hill, you know, so it is, but it's, uh, it is crazy. And now it's, it's it's not easy to raise money. I'm not good at asking people to give me money, but it is easy to make an appearance and, and stand up and talk about how we need to fight this. And, uh, you know, you wrote an article a few years back, the most money ever made on the na National Coaches versus Cancer Golf Tournament had been like $600,000, which is great. But at Pinehurst, we got it up to 1.6, and then somebody gave us another million to get it to 2.6. So it is something that we all need to, to fight that. Because my mom, and I, Joe, and I'll tell you this, and then we can stop, but she was really neat. Uh, 
she is going to have a, uh, uh, not an operation, a procedure. They were going to put, at that time, they called it a catheter. Now they call it a port in the chest wall to administer the chemo. And so I'm on the West Coast and recruiting. And I call her and I said, I think I'm going to fly back so I can be there tomorrow. She says, don't do that. She was always big on you do your job. I don't want you to get fired. (laughs) But she said, no. She said, it's going to be a 20-minute deal. She said, the only thing that bothers me, why did I have to be here at 2 o'clock today if they're not going to do the surgery until 2 o'clock tomorrow? I could have gone to bingo tonight. And that was a savior to me because I didn't want her to suffer. And so the next day when they're putting in the uh, catheter, they made a mistake and the, the wire punctured the pericardium, which is a sac that the heart sits in. And she had cardiac arrest on the table. And but that was my memory is she said I could have gone to play bingo. <laughs> and so uh, it is something. And you've heard the story. I still have the. Uh, when I get did get back after she passed and I get back to uh, uh, Asheville and I walk up in the front yard of her house that I'd built her in 1984 and this was 1992 and her friend that would take her to bingo walked over to me and handed me two $100 bills that she had won and that was huge for my mom and that was that was the grand prize but for some reason she wanted him to hold it and not just keep it in her purse while she went in the hospital and so he walked over and uh, uh, gave those to me and I gave one to my sister and I kept one and I've still got that hundred dollar bill in my in my wallet if somebody if I were to lose my wallet if it had one dollar in it or one thousand dollars in it I wouldn't care but I don't want to lose that hundred dollar bill because in my way of thinking that's another way of that was another dime that she left me coming up next on the Roy that dadgum legend podcast she thought it was wearing on me and I was getting older faster than other people and it the losses had gotten worse and worse and worse and that okay now you could go out on top and you're losing a lot of guys and you know this kind of thing but uh, no it's uh, it was I listened to her and shook my head yes and but said honey I'm not ready yet At WakeMed MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about every day of the year. Primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org. 